Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. This is a podcast where, among many other things, we're digging into what's going on in the digital revolution, turning the world upside down, business models, revenue models, life, work, balance models, what we do, where we do, how we do it, when we do it, but mostly giving people the chance to be artistic, to be creative, to have fun at what they're doing, to build their own lives and careers. And there is nobody on this planet who knows more about that, thinks more about it, and speaks more entertainingly about it than my dear buddy, Christopher Lockhead, who is with us today, along with his main man, Bean, who is a little camera shy at the moment. Christopher, good to see you. Good to see you, Bob. And I, I'd be surprised if Bean doesn't make a uh, a, uh, a visit here. Uh, he he normally shows up and he, he likes to put his bum right in the camera for you. So yeah. we'll see if he does well, that. But uh, he, uh, I think he senses when your when your attention is lagging or so, when you just you know maybe getting off the subject, he jumps in and sort of regrounds you, if I may say that. Yes, Good. yes, and he um, he somewhere between uh, four thirty and six, normally closer to four thirty, uh, when I'm generally completely asleep. I mean, shocking as it may be, uh, he 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 flies through the air and just like uh, seems to appear on my chest. And it's like, Whoa! and he makes this sort of I don't know R two D two e kind of sort of noise, and then he's right on me, and he has got the most sandpapery tongue you can imagine, and so just just put yourself fast asleep in deep REM sleep, and all of a sudden, Whoa! and then you're being you're, you're getting your face scraped off by. Yeah, so that's um, shave. that's uh, how I often often wake up, and you know I was never a cat guy ever, but he's a dog cat. He's a cat who identifies as a dog, and yeah, so yeah, good. He's changed changed me. Well, Christopher, life, you know, different experiences, things move on like that. But hey, there's a lot a lot going on in this nutty world today. I mean, nutty in the best sense. Uh, it's pretty <laughs> extraordinary right now. I just love you're in the middle of the mix of this. Uh, and I just, you know, as we often do, you've always got a bunch of different things that you might talk about. I'd love to hear you go, Chris, a little bit on what you're thinking about now and what sort of top of mind that you feel um, is going to give people insight into some stuff that's around the corner here, not quite fully visible to everybody yet. So I, th I think um, a big aha here is um, you and I were lucky enough to live through the build out of the internet in the 90s. What has been wrongly, in my opinion, called the internet, you know, bust or the dot bomb or whatever. And um, my friend Duncan Davidson, the venture capitalist, says all big breakthroughs need some kind of a boom uh -huh. to move the world forward. And, you know, I'd be curious as to your perspective, but we've known each other for a long time. And in the 90s, most of us knew, I know you knew, that we were living through the greatest time of breakthrough innovation, new technologies, new categories, new business models, uh, new approaches to the way we live, work, and play that the world had never seen before. The level of innovation, the, the speed and rate of that innovation uh, was nothing like what it was in the 90s and the startup creation and the existing S&P 500 companies doing incredibly innovative things. Um, and 
those of us who have a little bit of wisdom back then, I think we realized, wow, this is a very, very special time. Yeah. And I remember the the legendary venture capitalist, uh, John Doerr, saying the internet is actually underhyped. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people laughed at him. A lot of people criticized him. They said, oh, you're just trying to jack up the valuations of your companies and you're being a hype master. And, you know, he took a lot of flack for that. Well, John was right. The internet was underhyped. Well, today we're much further ahead in terms of the innovations that we're building on, right? Because we've got the internet built out. We've got mobile. We've got the cloud. These have been huge changes um, that has created radically different futures and radical new opportunities. And now we have AI. Mm -hmm. And so it's 1995 again, mm -hmm. but different, bigger innovation, more opportunity, more creativity, more democratization of the opportunity. Yeah. And it's one of the things we wanted to talk about today is, is build the build out of um, native digital communities, which I think is the big, the big different future that's coming. Um, and so I guess all I'm saying is for, for, uh, for those of us who are around for that innovation, um, you and I were talking about that bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember at about, you know, 2000, maybe not 2000, maybe 2001 ish seeing a bumper sticker. I think I almost positive it was in Palo Alto, certainly, you know, the heart of Silicon Valley bumper sticker that said, please God, just one more bubble. <laughs> well, here we are. Here yeah. we are. Yeah. And, um, and what I wonder is how many of us realize it? I think, I think today AI is underhyped. And uh, although I get laughed at the same way John got laughed at about the internet, I think I'm right because I learned from what he taught us. Yeah. And, and there's a famous quote, I'm, I'm forgetting who it comes from, which is um, something like I'm paraphrasing. This is not my idea. Any breakthrough technology is overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the mid to long term. Yes. And um, I said that. I think it's, was it Bob Evans? Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I didn't. I didn't originate it, but I've said it many, many times. <laughs> and so I think we're seeing that here. And I think um, those of us with some wisdom, um, this is a very, very exciting time um, because we can we have some context for what is potentially going on here, which is um, the biggest uh, uh, leap forward of our lifetimes in this technology, uh, primarily because of AI, but it's not just AI. It's all the things that AI stands on top of. Um, and then there's what Apple did recently, which we can talk about too, because the whole world, or most of the world didn't understand what Apple just did. Um, that is all part of this. Anyway, the point being, um, this is the greatest time. And if we were smart and we were us, and we're definitely us, we'd be thinking, what is likely going to be true about the difference in the world five years from now? What is likely to be true that's different about the world in 10 years from now? And begin to work today to uh, be the creators of that different future. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally in business, there's really only two kinds of people. 
There's people who get paid to manage and grow and improve generally in an incremental way, the way it is now. And that's what most people do. They go to work. They want to do a good job. They want to be good people, but essentially they want to go home and be with their families, have a good career, and they get paid to manage the way it is and make improvements over time because they're stewards of the way it is. Most people in business are stewards of the status quo. And that's very important. I, I don't mean that to be pejorative in any way. The people who make sure the planes stay up, we, we, this is what exactly what we want them doing, right? So most people work on what you could think of as the incremental better. And that's very important, right? We just had this bridge blow up. Horrible. We, we want people who make our bridges to be people who can make a bridge that doesn't blow up. Mm-hmm. And so um, very, very, very important. And there's a small percentage of us who don't get paid to work on the incremental better, but who do get paid to work on the exponential different. Mm-hmm. And our guess is that's probably less than 10% of business people. And the people who do the exponential different make the people who do the incremental better insane on purpose, right? Because the people who work on the, the exponential different are breaking the status quo and creating a whole new thing. And if your job, if the way you make your living is maintaining and growing and protecting the status quo, very important for lots of things, right? We want, this is what we want heart surgeons focused on, right? Et cetera. Uh, However, um, the people who get paid to manage and grow the way that it is really are not approving of those of us who show up and go, hey, fuck that. Let's do something completely different. Um, Now, all that said, if you're somebody like yourself, like myself, who spent their entire career trying to understand the exponential difference, trying to understand how the future might be different from the present and the past, and how we might even be part of shaping that future in our own little ways. Um, if you're that kind of person, that is to say somebody who gets paid to create the exponential different, now's the greatest time in history. And it makes the opportunity that we all had in the 90s look like nothing. Um, and that's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You know, Christopher, I, I wanted to um, offer just a maybe an unexpected example here of what you're talking about. I think it's, it's pretty cool, you know, for a number of reasons. So, right. As you were going through this and describing it, I imagine there would be, uh, it's understandable. Some people might think, Oh, he's talking about 24 year olds doing this and this off on their own. So I'm cool new things. And no doubt there are lots and lots of those folks, but you know, who I think is one of the best examples of what you're talking about is a guy who's going to be 79 in a couple of months. And his name is Larry Ellison. He's had a company for 46 years, the same company. And he's the one who always tongue a number of people keep everything running on schedule. He's also coming in and, you know, uh, reorganizing, reshaping, redefining, turning the company upside down, shaking it around and telling everybody, hey, keep doing all the stuff you're supposed to do while we're doing this. And the reason I mentioned this, Chris, is uh, and it's about a month ago, but um, Oracle had this uh, this thing, they called it the database summit out at their headquarters. And they invited, I don't know, a dozen or so analysts to be there. I was fortunate enough to be one of them. 
toward the end of this day, it was supposed to be an executive Q&A, who pops up on the screen but Larry Ellison. And one of the things that he said early on in this conversation, he took questions for 75 minutes. One of the things he said, we're Isn't that great? company. What's that? Isn't that great that he would just sit yeah. there and do an ask yeah. me anything yeah. like that? And classic thing, you know, talk about whatever you want about nobody filtering the questions or yep. anything like that. But he said, we're a very strange company. He said, it might sound odd for me to say that, but it's true because he was describing how we're different. Nobody does the things we do and the combinations of things of how we do them. And then he went through that because people are trying to say, how are you being successful at a time when these three giant companies, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, were supposed to mop up the floor with everything. Right. Still not right. nearly as big as them, but you're you're turning things around here. So he went on to describe the key was different. Um, and then, Chris, you know, recently Oracle had its uh, Q fiscal Q4 earnings call. And the very first thing Larry Ellison said in his prepared remarks is he said, Oracle has taken a fundamentally different approach to cloud infrastructure. And he's described other times how they're originally the uh, engineering teams at Oracle were setting out to make exactly this sort of cloud, same cloud infrastructure as the leaders. And he killed that. He said, we, we offered nothing distinctive, nothing new, nothing different. So you've got a guy who with the recent run up in Oracle stock because of the incredible success their cloud business is having. He's now, I don't know, third, fourth wealthiest person in the world. He's going to be 79 in a couple months. Um, his company's been around for almost half a century. And he would be, I think, an example of one of those people who's who believes this is the best time to be alive. This is the best time to be a creator. But to be a creator, you got to create. You cannot just get caught up in the flow of saying, Hey, whoa! This is this is the rules. Don't color outside the lines. You know, don't step over here. And I think it's it's a wonderful thing Ellison has always said, which is, if people aren't calling you crazy and insane, you are not innovating. You're not stepping outside aggressively enough. So I, I just think all those terrific points you raised, the excitement, the new models, the capabilities, the deployment of these extraordinary technologies in ways that have never before been possible are just cascading together. And I think it's hard for most of us to comprehend fully just what a vast, unlimited, and wildly optimistic future sits right in front of us. Because, you know, for one reason or another, schools, or in some cases, parents or friends or peer pressure, we are, there's all these things around us that are constantly trying to tell us, you know, keep a tight view on things, you know, play by the rules, color inside the lines, don't, straight, be a little bit better than other people. And you have always, and I think it's one of the, the reasons that you've been so successful and stuff. You said, yeah, there's a place for that, but a much more fun, interesting, exciting place is be different. Absolutely. And it's it's amazing to hear Ellison talking that way at this point in his life and career. It's 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 fantastic. And listen, it's a big part of why they're a uh you know, $350 billion market cap company, right? I mean, it's a very serious company. I was just looking at the chart. I mean, if you if you click on the one year of their stock chart, you'll see. I mean, it looks like Mount Everest onto the, on, on the, up and to the right. Um, and this is during a time, of course, where what have we been hearing? Tech companies laying off, tech companies missing their numbers, tech companies uh, having their market caps cut in half in some cases, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
you, you got to wonder. And I mean, you know him. I mean, you worked directly for him for years. He's got to have an understanding. He's got to have some kind of a, what you and I are talking about, that this is the greatest time. And we've been given, those of us who are around for the internet build out, we've been given another opportunity here. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, one, one other thing, and I'm, I'm talking a little bit more about Oracle here, not so much to try to, you know, tout Oracle or something, but I believe Larry Ellison will be remembered as one of the geniuses of all time in American business, global business, whatever you want to call it, certainly in the tech industry. I mean, anywhere. And then you think about the stuff he's no done question. with sailboat racing, turned that whole stuffy sort of uptight thing upside down. And I'll never forget, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago, the beginning of the America's Cup, he launches this trimaran bigger than anything anybody's ever seen before, fixed wing sails. And this sort of little dweeb who's was the you know uh, son of a guy who built a big pharmaceutical company in Europe, and now he's running that the company and he's in charge of their entry into the America's Cup. I'd use your sniveling voice of you know the one you do. He comes in, and he says, "Well, if I knew he was going to build one of those, I was going to I would have built one too." It's like, oh, really? That's not how the world works here, brother. Uh, yeah, if I could have just been a copycat, <laughs> I would have been. Um, but then you've got, and Christopher, I don't know. I know a lot of these tech companies pretty well. He's been there 46 years from the beginning. Safra Katz, the CEO, has been there 24 years. There's no other pair at the top of a company who've ever been there that long. So I thought it was really meaningful. And I think meaningful in a good way, and I would say a different way. Uh, at the end of Safra's prepared remarks in the earnings call, before she handed it over to Larry, she said something that unlike anything I've ever heard her say before on an earnings call, and she's probably done over quarter century, you know, close to a hundred of these things. She said, now, before I hand it over to Larry, I just wanted to say thank you, Larry, for your, your vision, your determination, your brilliance, and, you know, your willingness to push us into areas that maybe we felt we couldn't go. Um, so I think, Chris, the fact that she chose now to say that, um, I'm sure, I don't, I'm not sure, I would strongly believe she's felt that for a number of years, but she felt the company wasn't ready. She wasn't ready. The company hadn't really hit its stride. Let's hold that. But she feels like now's the time. So you got this company that a lot of people wrote off as, legacy fuddy-duddy doesn't know what they're doing and they are tearing things up right now we all ought to take from that i think an idea you're never too young you're never too old you've never been in one place too long or too short and it's always an opportunity to say those things she pointed out brilliance determination vision of seeing things in a different light what could the world be yes. you always love to talk about and you just did a couple minutes yes. ago. I, I, these are timeless lessons. Uh, and it, you don't have to be a 325, $350 billion market cap company to do this. But uh, so I, the other I, thing I love I about Ellison, learn lessons, Chris, fascinating. yes, absolutely. And the other thing I love about where they're at now and what he's saying is um, those of us with memories who've been around, there was a point in time where Larry sh is shat the the past tense of shit shat on is it shat on or shitted on that is the that is the british uh version yes yeah better than shitted right shat 
So, so Larry shat on the cloud very loudly. I mean, you remember, you wrote about it. And so for Oracle to be doing what they're doing, Larry had to be wrong. And not just wrong, but wrong in the context of very opposite public statements. And I love that. One of my favorite expressions, it's not my idea, I can't remember who said it, but if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? <laughs> and another expression I love is, most people would rather be right than successful. <laughs> or, yeah, I told you it's never going to happen. Oh, fuck, <laughs> it happened. Oh, shit. Would rather be right than be happy is another one. That, absolutely, that's another good one. My point is, Maybe the most innovative thing about Allison over the last 15 or 20 years is his willingness to change his position and to see the innovation when he didn't see it before and now lead it. Um, you know, the other one in this regard, I talk, was talking to Mike Maples on my podcast a little while ago, the legendary VC, and he said he thinks that Satya Nadella might go down in history as the greatest CEO of all time. And the interesting thing about that is, first of all, under Bomber, Microsoft took off more than a decade, missed the cloud, and very quietly, Satya turned that whole thing around, primarily with Microsoft Office into the cloud, right? Which should never have worked. Uh, in a similar way, Shantanu did the same thing at Adobe and, and didn't get enough credit for it, right? Moving a client server moving an on-premise business, moving a legacy uh, consumer apps business into the cloud is actually a non-trivial thing for a large public company. Not just the technology, but the real issue is the business model change. Because you take revenue that you would have recognized in the current quarter when you sell a product and you amortize it over a year or two years, that is the contract of the SaaS agreement. And the minute you do that, you take, you take what would have been uh, revenue that would have been recorded in the current quarter and you spread it over two years if it's a two-year contract, which basically means you destroy your revenue, which makes Wall Street batshit because the smart people on Wall Street can't do the math and they don't understand the shift between current revenue to deferred revenue. Whereas I, who failed grade four math, I understand these things, but uh, neither here nor there. The point being, when you take um, uh, uh, what was, um, uh, let's just say, let's just say 12 million bucks for a year long or 24 million bucks to keep it real simple over two years. Right. So if you did a $24 million deal in the past in your Oracle in a pre-SAS model, $24 million worth of revenue and then profit and margin and all the other EPS and all the other things go into the current quarter. When you go to a SAS model, one twenty-fourth of it goes into the current month or three twenty-fourths of it in the current quarter, depending on when you did the deal. Uh -huh. And the rest of it gets pushed forward in this thing called deferred revenue. Well, guess what? Your revenue number goes from way up here to literally in the toilet and it breaks the toilet and keeps going. <laughs> and so it, to people who just track revenue and don't understand bookings, don't understand deferred revenue, et cetera, et cetera, um, it looks like the company's cratering. And so my point is every public company that made the, the software company that made the transition to the cloud 
not only had to do the technical things that they had to do, not only had to beat back, in many cases, smaller, focused, niche startup competitors who were, who were trying to change the game on them, but they also had to deal with multiple years of pain and suffering on Wall Street because their market cap suffered because most people on Wall Street didn't want to do the metrics changes to have them truly understand what was going on in the business. Yeah. And so the point being, Ellison had to take a tremendous amount of risk and 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 go back on many things that he had said publicly in order to get to where he is. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Chris, a couple things on that. One, um, you know, I over time it, we kind of let business models and all that ossify and uh, you know, without somebody in there you haven't changed your mind lately how you sure you still have one um the the rapid changes in business models and how those are going on um unless you really work at that all of a sudden you're gonna wake up one day and say holy crap everybody's here and i'm over there uh you know i gotta catch up one of the most interesting things i think oracle's done in the last year or so is part of this build up to this you know surge that they're in the midst of now they've to, they are turning a lot of their best customers into partners as well as customers. So JP Morgan Chase now has become a close partner for Oracle on creating these new apps around billing and payments. So JP Morgan Chase will continue to be a customer, but they also become now a software company, a software services company that sells this. FedEx is doing that in partnership with Oracle on the uh, logistics side. So we're seeing these giant companies that usually just consume software now create it and become very sorts of different businesses themselves. But that required on Oracle's part of willingness to say, hey, wait, I got to be able to set up a system that says, okay, over here, FedEx is a partner over here, they're a customer, you know, maybe then we bring those back together. Uh, instead of saying, oh, no, 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 that's not how we do it. We've got a two-tiered or six-tiered or N-tiered distribution system. And no, 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 we can't do that. Um, and, you know, another part of this, Chris, is a, 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 the same guy at Oracle, his name is Doug Caring. He's an executive vice president, kind of their chief operating officer. But he's the guy who's been there since 1999 or 2000, who really was Safra Katz's number one person for all those hundred acquisitions that Oracle did and bringing those companies in, integrating them. He then became the person that was picked a few years ago to help lead this culture change inside Oracle, this mindset change, you know, from non-premise, all those things you talked about. Now we're cloud coming. We're going to, you know, split our revenue up differently and we're going to get the salespeople because you went to it, Chris. Did the salespeople like when you switched from... <laughs> You know, recognizing no. a $24 million deal to spreading it out? No, the salespeople thought that was insane. And of so, course, the salespeople cared about what you want them to actually care about, which is, how does this affect my commission? Yeah. And right. I'll never so forget this. Years, changed, years and years ago, I was, I was being interviewed to go on the board of this software company. And the founder and CEO of the company was an engineering kind of guy, as, as is often the case. And I'm, I'm sitting in the discussion with him about the company and how I might be able to help and all this sort of shit. And he looks at me, Bob, and he says, and you know what? At our company, all our salespeople are engineers. 
And you can't be a salesperson here unless you can do your own demos. Hmm. And and I sat there and I thought, <laughs> I am never joining the board of this company ever. And I did it. And that company failed horribly. Because <laughs> you know what? It turns out having salespeople who think the commission plan's important is exactly what you want. <laughs> like, what do you, you want salespeople thinking about how to grow flowers or what new feature that, no. I, I, we want salespeople who are thinking about how to close the quarter because if they do it well, they get to buy a new Mercedes or or Tesla or Rivian or whatever they want. I'm just I trying we, to... <laughs> we think salespeople who are focused on commissions are bad. Okay, see ya. I'm trying to picture you. Oh fuck! Getting there in that <laughs> office. Like. I was in Seattle. I was like, what? I came to Seattle for this? You could have told me this on the phone. <laughs> hey, you should have loved that guy. He had a oh. different idea. <laughs> oh, it was different, all right. <laughs> and hey, I had an idea for him. Let's hire a bunch of salespeople and let them write our code. See how that works out. Well, the engineers selling software and the salespeople writing code. This was long before GPT, where salespeople could write code. <laughs> oh. All right. All right. You got me. I give. I yield. I have no idea where I am or uh, whatever <laughs> it was we were talking about. Uh, wow. Uh. Oh. And so I, I actually think this means something for all of us in our careers. Uh, and here's the big, big aha. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past. Um, Peter Drucker created the term knowledge worker decades and decades ago now to, to describe the difference between people who make money with their muscles and money with their minds. Well, in an AI world, if your job is primarily acquire knowledge and get paid to apply that knowledge, which is what a knowledge worker is. Well, if a robot can do that, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. That's the question. <clears throat> and the short answer is uh, people who are in the acquire existing knowledge and apply and get paid to apply existing knowledge business are in a lot of trouble. The traditional knowledge workers in a lot of trouble. Now that's the bad news. The good news is, the most legendary knowledge workers were never actually just knowledge workers. They were people who, yes, got paid to acquire and apply knowledge, but they also got paid to create net new knowledge. Anybody who's created a spreadsheet template has created new thinking. Anybody who's, who's created a new PowerPoint has created new thinking. Of course, anybody who's written software Anybody who has created any, anybody who's written a, a an incredible business plan or an incredible white paper or the you have you are a creator. And so the unlock here is the future is not about getting paid to uh, apply existing knowledge. That's how most of us have made our livings. That's why you go to school and get an MBA or a PhD or an IUD or a DOG. That's why you do that, right? And the better the school you get your DOG from, the better off you do. 
there's still value in that for sure. However, the value of existing knowledge is decreasing every day because of GPT, because of, uh, 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 I always call it Baird, because of Bard um, and, and so many others, right? Those are just the high kind of profile ones. Um, so that's the scary thing for a lot of us. But here's the, here's the opportunity. What if you could get paid to create? Mm -hmm. So in other words, if a robot can do your job, you need a new job. And the job you need is somebody who creates net new thinking, creates net new knowledge, who takes existing knowledge, stands on its shoulder and bring it forward, right? And so at the top of the pyramid now is not the knowledge worker in terms of most valuable workers in, in society. It's what we're now thinking of as a um, creator capitalist, somebody who gets paid to create. And most people who get paid to create today get paid to create in highly collaborative ways because most of what we create is something we create with other people. And so the skill sets around being able to collaborate, innovate, and create net new, that's where the new value is going forward. And I think that's exciting. I, I personally, you know, when, when GPT first came out, I went to it and I typed into it. <clears throat> what would Christopher Lockhead tell me to do about category design? <laughs> and it spewed out an answer. And the answer was 70, 80% right. How long did that take? Oh, Two seconds. <laughs> right. It took me 35 years. Took GPT. Right. right. <laughs> so I took a screenshot of this thing and I posted it on LinkedIn and I said, chat GPT just cost me my job. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great because now I don't have to answer this question anymore. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, my point is, if you're intimidated by that, I understand why. And maybe consider a different headset. Maybe our job is different. Maybe we can co-create with these things, right? And so um, my, my point is the future belongs to the creative capitalist. The future belongs to the person who can leverage the technology to create net new thinking and monetize that thinking in multiple ways, either for their employer or for themselves. And so I think the mindset shift is everybody's a creator and there's two kinds of creators. There's people who create for fun, God bless you. And there's people who get paid to create, creator capitalists. And the more you're a creator capitalist, the more valuable you'll be and the more money you'll make. And the more you're just a knowledge worker, the more vulnerable you are. Yeah. And that's why the future belongs to the people who can get paid to create. And philosophers will tell us that the highest form of being for us is creation. Yeah. Human beings are here to create, whether it's paintings, software, or a, a wonderful garden, right? And so human beings in our ultimate form are creators of things. And we know when we create shit together, that's the difference between a human being and virtually every other creature on the planet which is when human beings come together to create things, we can literally move the world. And so that's why this is such an exciting time. And, and my point is, 
a lot of the conversation around AI is upside down. That is to say, it's about the negative, it's about the fear, it's about all these things. And those are all valid, important things to talk about. I'm not dismissing those things. Uh, I just had a conversation with David Shellhays, who most people consider one of the greatest general counsels in the history of Silicon Valley. And we talk about the future of AI regulation and his respect for regulators, interestingly enough. He was the, he was the general counsel of Salesforce who took Salesforce public. He was the general counsel of Slack who took Slack public and then turned around and sold Slack to Salesforce. Um, and so David spent a lot of time in his career working with regulators. And interestingly enough, he said to me, because I, I shat on lawmakers. And he said, I'm, uh, he said, I'm glad you're making the distinction between lawmakers and regulators, because there are a lot of dumb lawmakers and there are a lot of really great regulators, okay. which I found incredible. Anyway, That's good to hear. The point is, yes, we have to talk about um, governance for AI. Of course we do. And I still think we're mostly having the wrong conversation. The, the right conversation is what different future can we create given AI sitting on top of internet, sitting on top of mobile, sitting on top of cloud? That's the right conversation. It's like the immigration conversation in this country. Do we need to have a conversation about the southern border and protecting the integrity of our of our uh, uh, um, uh, border? Yeah, we do. Countries without borders, not so much countries. Very important discussion. Very important. And you know the immigration conversation we don't have. We don't have enough fucking engineers. We don't have enough entrepreneurs. We don't have enough legendary innovators. America has to win the AI race. So where's the conversation called? How is America attracting the most innovative, creative, entrepreneurial, category designing, ass-kicking people in the world to come do their thing here? That conversation is as important, and I would argue even a little more important, than how we secure the southern border. Both important. One conversation we're having, not doing very well on that one. The other one we're not even having. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris, before we go, and uh, one of the reasons that I have to go is I got to go. Um, I got a new little granddaughter, she's 12 days old. She has spent those 12 days in intensive care unit and she's a little scrapper. Every challenge that she's had, she's overcome. And uh, I think she's going to be one of those, you know, creative embracers because one of the things that the doctors said about one of the challenges with her heart rate had been dropping at different times, and they had to help use some of their machinery to fix that. The doctors have assured uh, the baby's mom and dad that as they are using these machines to fix it, this 10, 9, 10, 11-day-old baby brain is wiring the switches to be able to regulate her own heart rate. And they said, we just want to keep her here until she's able to do that on her own. So if at 10 days old, the human brain can re can wire itself to regulate heartbeat and other things and so on like that, I am using that going forward, talking to people, Chris, about what you said. Yeah, there's some fear about saying, ah, I used to do this. Maybe I need to lean into that. I did some creative, but I was more toward this part than that, the human brain is 
unbelievable. And, and none of us should sell ourselves short. I think your ideas, your passion, your wisdom, this painting, what is the future we want to paint? Let's go paint it. And uh, it's it's wonderfully optimistic. Chris, I have to ask, so many people know what you do, but not everybody knows what you do. So it's Category Pirates is a place, right, where people can go and see a lot of the great stuff you and your buddies are doing, right? And did I hear you say there's a book coming up? Yeah, we have a new book coming out right now called The 22 Laws of Category Design. And it's sort of a, both a synthesis of everything we've learned about category design over the last 35 years, as well as a bunch of new thinking. And so it's um, very exciting for for us. And it's also a hat tip to uh, uh, two of the OGs whose shoulders we aspire to stand on. So recent Trout are the godfathers of positioning and uh, two of my heroes, two of all of our heroes. Uh, for us, they're right there with Drucker. They're right there with Ogilvy. They're right there with a lot of the heroes that we have, uh, Jeffrey Moore and many others, uh, Porter, Christensen, uh, you know, some of the great thinkers that we love. Anyway, they wrote a book years ago called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And so as a hat tip to them, we wrote the 22. We took immutable out because it's a long word that most people can't figure out today. But uh, <laughs> the 22 laws of category. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, probably not a great thing. But we just, we, we, in the spirit of today, shortened that up and made it, made it real simple. Um, and then, yeah, our Category Pirates newsletter is still one of the top 10 um, most popular paid newsletters in the world. Um, and that's, you know, that's an exciting thing. Um, and then we got a big new book coming out in the fall called paid to create. Um, and we're launching a whole bunch of new courses for people who here's the aha that we've had. Um, there's about 80,000 marketing books on Amazon. 80,000. We haven't read. Yeah. We, we haven't read all of them, but we've read a lot of them, you know, the, the seminal ones. And, We've also, there's, I think it's 30,000 strategy books, business strategy books, if I'm remembering right. Anyway, I'm directionally there. And again, we haven't read all those, but we've read a bunch of the big ones as, as, as you, as have you. Here's the aha. The vast majority of business content, whether it's newsletters or books or courses or podcasts or whatever it is, almost all of it is made for people who do the, the incremental better. You know, think about think about a Harvard yeah. Business Review case study. Well, that's what that is. And we learn from the past. We 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 want to know the best practices so we can implement them now. Well, a best practice is the best thinking from the past applied to the present. Mm -hmm which by definition produces an incremental result. And as we talked about earlier, if you're trying to optimize the strength of steel for the bridge, that's exactly where you want to be. Um, if you're trying to create the AI future, the past as the model is 100% wrong. One of the things we teach people in category design is reject the premise. We start with reject everything about the way that it is. And then sort of law number one is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And so the point being, if, if we want to be somebody who works on the exponential different, 
who takes advantage of these massive megatrends that we've been talking about in the continent, just like Ellison has, then there's very little business content for that. There's very little, very few books, very few podcasts, very few courses, very few fill in the blanks for people in business who want to create the exponential different. It's all about creating the incremental better. And so what we've been working on really is a, a library of thinking and research um, that is purpose-built for helping those who want to um, create an exponentially different future, aka category design, a new category of thinking, a new category of products, services, technology, et cetera. And the reality is most people aren't working on a new category of thinking. They're working on extending the existing category. And so um, long story longer, um, we find ourselves in this fascinating spot, which is the people who create the most value in the shortest period of time, the people who, who break and take new ground are category designers. They are the people who create new ways of thinking, living, working, and playing. Um, and yet there are very little resources for that. Well, it sounds like, Chris, you know, what you've got now is your newsletter and your newsletter, I don't mean uh, in some ways is interconnected with your books, your books now and the courses that are coming up. This is fantastic. And I think, like you said, there's there's not a lot of stuff out there. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff about the past and the present. We have very little about the future. So um, it is a it sounds like an, a fantastic set of resources You've uh, certainly written a number of bestsellers. You've, you've got your cred uh, that can't be denied. And there's some, I think there's an important thing that we've learned that I'd love to share here. Yeah. Um, so I was talking to a couple of new young category designers fairly recently. And they were saying to me, you know, how do we make category design more accessible for people and easier to understand and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I think that's a very good thing to be thinking about because any new, the more you can make a breakthrough in the case of category design, idea and set of frameworks and intellectual capital accessible, the better off we're all going to be. So I think that's a good, a very good thing to be talking about with young category designers. And I also said to him, we must realize that the people who are meant to get it are going to get it. And the people who are never meant to get it are never going to get it. Mm. And so I think what I've learned for myself is if you're somebody who spent the bulk of your professional life working on the exponential different, you've got to realize that you're probably in the less than 10% because most people don't get paid to do what you get paid to do. And um, at least for me, understanding that has <laughs> been very good for my sanity and knowing <laughs> that people who get paid to do the incremental better by definition are, are, are generally not going to want you around. Yeah. Um, that's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> and so I think now's the greatest time in history to be working on the exponential different. And I think those of us who do that also need to understand that that's not what most people do. And so when we're at interacting with most people, you've got to find a bridge to people who aren't wired for the, you know, the radical different. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to take them with us. We can't leave them behind. And we've also got to realize most people are never going to think the way we do. 
Yeah, and, that, and that's okay. But I like that first part of what you said. The people that you that are supposed to get it will get it. Uh, that, that's yes. a wild ride. It's a self-selecting thing. Yes, you know, s- some people go work on the bleeding edge of technology innovation, and some people go to work for the DMV. Hmm. We need a functioning DMV. Yes. But you couldn't get the people on the bleeding edge of innovation to go work for the DMV. And you probably don't want the people who are attracted to working at the DMV to be uh, trying to figure out a different future. Don't get me started again, please. All right, my friend. (laughs) All right, Bob. As always. Hey, God bless Lulu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, strong gal. Thanks, Chris. Always great. Thanks for Thank you, uh, the ideas, the inspiration, and motivations on things. Really, really fun. And for the laughs. Can't discount always, that. Always love to see you, Bob. Always love spending time with you. Say hi to John and everybody for me. We'll do. We'll do, Chris. Folks, thanks to all of you uh, for being with us here on this journey into the unknown with Christopher Lockhead, Category Pirate Guy. Uh, watch out. Great to see you. Hope your beginning of your summer is off to a wonderful start. We'll be back soon. So long. Christopher, thanks a million. Perfect. You're in rare, rare form today. <laughs> and we didn't talk about the shit I prepared. <laughs> you got one in the can for next month. Excellent. Go have fun with that beautiful little girl. All right. So great, Grandpa. Thanks, okay. my friend. Bye-bye. Thank Christopher. you. Bye-bye.